Baptist Church in Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Maryland. And they sang several hymns, first and last verses only. I appreciate the fact that we sing all the verses here at McKinney Bible Church. We don't sing them all. That's the problem. Well, yeah. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I got the perfect lead-in to my message this morning from work this week. A friend of mine that I have uh, come to know over the last three and a half, going on four years now. We've had kind of an interesting relationship. He absolutely denies the existence of God, will have nothing to do with considering himself a humble human being, has pretty much everything you could want in life. He jet sets around the world in a private jet. And yet he and I have a strange relationship because I've presented to him the gospel and even in given him some material to read that he might consider the existence of God. And this week he gave me the perfect lead-in to my message today. And he said to me as we finished up a conversation about catching up on matters of life and how he's doing and how his kids are doing, he said to me, you know, David, to be happy in life, that's what it's all about, happiness. That's what I want. That's what I want for my kids. So long as we have happiness, we're okay. And how shallow, because the book of Ecclesiastes addresses that for us uh, that we will see today. And I'm only going to get to a certain portion of Ecclesiastes, obviously. But uh, we live in a world today that is tugging hard at every one of us, from young to the oldest. And it's pulling us hard in a direction that is absolutely counter to the truth of God. His existence, the truth he's given us in his word to live by. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a good one for us to look at because it addresses these things. Where is hope? Where is truth? Where is joy really found? And Solomon searches it out. We'll see that. And yet he comes to a conclusion that a typical person would not really uh, come to. So if you would, look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And we'll look at the first three verses here as uh, we're introduced to this book. And he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So right off the bat he sets sets us to know who it is. He calls himself the preacher. And he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Have you ever seen one word used so many times in one verse? Obviously, in Scripture, they weren't written with verse numbers, but isn't it interesting? You think he wants us to get a point? There is vanity 
all around us, and it's tugging hard at us. And so he concludes that all is vanity, and therefore, and then he sets forth his thesis. This is what he's going to set out to explore, to search out, and to answer. He says, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? So look at that word advantage. I'm not sure what word is used in your translation, but think of it as what gain, what profit, how do I get ahead in life? How does a man get ahead? And uh, what advantage is there in all the work that we do under the sun? Now, as I was explaining to the young adults when we started looking at this book, there's two phrases you want to really, really hone in on in the, throughout this book. And the first one we see here, and that is under the sun. When he uses this term, under the sun, what he's meaning there is from the perspective of man, life in the flesh. Uh, as we live it out, and we have uh, this existence, this life, what's the advantage of all the work that I do in this life if I'm only looking for gain in life through the work I do? And he's going to answer that question for us. The other phrase that we want to keep in mind as, and we'll run into in our passage here today is under heaven. Under heaven is from the perspective of God. So looking at uh, the order of creation, for example, from God's perspective, it's good. But you know what? He's going to tell us it's frustrating to me as a man because I can't change anything about it. So this is the question he has. What advantage does man have in all his work which he has done under the sun? So to find the answer, some of you who read a lot of books probably like to go to the end of the book. Let's do that. Let's see what he says as the answer to this question. And remember that everything in between these pages, from, from beginning to end, everything in this book is driving to answer, to come up with a resolution to this question of what advantage is there in all my work. And now in the end, uh, this is his conclusion, starting in verse 8. We read this already, but I want us to go through it again because we need to level set here. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So he sums it all up after all his arguments have been made and searched out. This is still his conclusion. All is vanity. If I'm looking for pleasure, for contentment, for satisfaction, for deep uh, um, joy in life, lasting, it's, it's something that goes beyond just my simple, short little life. He say, if you're looking for it just in the work you do, it's vain. And he restates that here. And then going on in verse 9, I want us to look at these, were, these verses in some detail here. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. So not only does Solomon search these out for his own good, but he's teaching. And this seems to indicate that he taught more than just his little group of friends or his little counselors uh, group. He sought out to teach all the people, whoever would listen. And we know some of those that came to see him, kings and queens from all over the world would come to him to search out, how do you know so much? How do you understand things? What's life all about? Tell me about it. And so he's teaching as he understands and ponders these things. And look at the words he uses to summarize what he has done 
And this has taken many years to come to this conclusion, to do all these things that he's going to tell us in this book. And he says he pondered, he searched out, he has sat down and he has thought. This is, if you want to understand the book of Ecclesiastes as so much of scripture, you have to do more than read the words that are in black and white. You have to take the time to contemplate, to ponder. The meaning is below the surface of the words that you see quite often. And so as he pondered and as he searched out, he put together these many Proverbs that we now have in our hands today. And we're thankful for those. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you may consider it as something, this is kind of depressing. Vanity. Everything I do is vain. There's no, it's like striving after wind, he'll say. So it can be quite depressing. But look at what he says here in verse 10. The preacher sought out to find delightful words. You know what that means? He, wanted, he set out, he, he determined in his mind to write these Proverbs down in ways that are pleasant, delightful for us to ponder as well. And the way I think we need to understand this is what he's doing is he's showing us the deceptions that the world has all around us. And we see it so clearly in our day and age too, pulling us away from the real truth of God, pulling us away from that eternity that God has put in the heart of every man and trying to satisfy that curiosity, that uh, element of searching out truth by our own means and substituting the truth of God for the truth that man sets up as his own measure. So he's wanting, they are delightful words because he's giving us the truth. He's laying it out here for us after he has searched it out. And uh, to emphasize this, he says, to write words of truth and to write them down correctly. There is no deception. There is no misleading uh, in the words that he has given us today. And then he says, the words, uh, verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads. And we're not really sure what that word is, but we're given a clue as the verse goes on. And masters of these collections, these collections of the Proverbs, these goads that Solomon has put together, are like well-driven nails. So if we master the things of God's word, and we're looking particularly at the book of Ecclesiastes today, if we master these things, we're like a well-driven nail. I don't know about you, but I really like the metaphors that God uses in his word to help us of little minds compared to God understand what he means. And so uh, what he's saying here is that they're like well-driven nails. These Proverbs, if you master them, it's like a well-driven nail. What does a well-driven nail do? What's it like? What's its characteristics? It takes a lot of force to drive it into a piece of wood, doesn't it? That's why you have a hammer. But you can't get it out either. It won't come out without a lot of brute force. And so it's something he's trying to convey the idea that a well-driven nail, if we master these things, we're like a well-driven nail. They will help us be steadfast throughout life, immovable. And he's also giving us a clue about God's perspective in this matter, in these matters of these Proverbs is, they are the steadfast word of God that is unchangeable. And so uh, we want to master them. We want to uh, ponder and search them out as well, the truths that Solomon has uh, 
written down here. And then he says then finally in that verse 11, they are given by one shepherd. So these words are God-breathed. We need to pay attention to them. And we also need to understand them that they're from a shepherd. Why does he use that word? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? And I believe he uses that word because what does a shepherd do? A shepherd provides guidance for his flock. A shepherd is a provider for his flock that, he, that they may be sustained. He's their protector. He's their caretaker. And that's exactly what God is giving us through these Proverbs that Solomon has written down for us today. Verse 12, but beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and the excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. As you know, on any subject you can think of, there are masses of literature, of data, of information, and of books written on the subject. And what we get when we leave God's word and start reading all these other books, which they are, there is a profit in them, there is a benefit in them, helps us to think differently about some things. But when we look for truth in all these other th ways and we forsake the word of God, it will be misleading and it will, uh, we will find all different kinds of opinions and it becomes wearisome to us. Verse 13, the, the conclusion when all has been heard. Now what I want you to do is to think of yourself as being in a court. Imagine that this is a court and the judge, Solomon, is at the head, <clears throat> and everything has been laid out before him. Think of it as a courtroom. All the evidence has been laid out. All the arguments have been made, and now it's silent. Everybody is waiting for the verdict to come down from the judge. And this is what the judge says. After all has been heard and said and seen and done, and pondered and searched out in life, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments because that applies to every man. And this applies to every man really maybe is a little bit better translated. It is the duty of every man. God has put it in every man to fear him and to obey him. And uh, when man rejects that, man rejects everything of God. And so as uh, he's giving us the keys then to living life and to living it rightly, and he gives us the final one here in verse 14, explaining further this conclusion that he's come to of fearing God and keeping his commandments, because this is the duty of every man, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God alone is the judge who sits and rules over all. And he is the one who can expose every deed done in darkness, every thought that we have had uh, just in our minds that never came out in our words. He will judge. And so what I think he's doing here is he's saying, watch out. In fact, he does tell us this in, in other parts of this that we're not going to get to today. He's saying, so go on and live life. Do what you want to do, but remember, everything you do is going to be brought under judgment of God. So God, in the end, is going to bring in line with his righteous justice everything that we've done.
So live life. There's three keys to living life righteously given to us in these verses, these last two verses. Fear God, keep his word, and know that everything I do will be, be brought in line in the end with his righteous justice. So that's his conclusion after all has been heard. Now let's go back to the beginning again in chapter 1. And as Solomon uh, goes through this, through this book, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it, it may have seemed a little confusing to you, a little disjointed. kind of did to me, and I had never really studied it uh, until recently. And uh, it's a very profitable study. And you begin to see the patterns that uh, he's doing here, he's developing here. And the first one, uh, he's going to be building on blocks. He's building up to the point of where we got to in the end of when all has been heard. This is the final conclusion. He's building his argument over time. And so the first block that he builds uh, is, we find it in chapters 1 and 2, and that's what we're going to look at today. And we'll kind of go through these rather quickly, unfortunately, but uh, given time, that's what we need to do. So first of all, he looks in this first building block, he looks to the things that God has set in place that we can all observe. And uh, we find those in verses 4 and following. And he says, for example, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And he's going to give us examples, and I'm not going to read every verse here, but he's giving us examples of how the sun rises and goes to, uh, and sets, and then it comes up again. These are things that we can depend on. These are things that we do depend on. And uh, that just continue on and on. They're cycles, they're patterns of life that God has established. The blowing uh, of the wind is another one that's an example of, it has its circular patterns throughout the world, and it has its purpose, doesn't it? If we didn't have wind, this would be a miserable place to live. Uh, but it brings different weather patterns, and, uh, and it, it swirls around and comes back again on these patterns. And then uh, an interesting one is starting in verse 7. All the rivers flow into the sea. And can't you see Solomon sitting beside the river Euphrates? Here he is, king in all his pomp and circumstance and all his hosts of men and women around him. And he's sitting there, and he's just thinking, sitting beside the river. He's looking, okay, what does this teach me? Remember, he's pondering, he's searching out. He's exploring is another word he'll use. And as he looks at the river, this is the thought that he comes to. He says, the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Well, that's interesting. If you took a measuring cup and you had a bowl and you keep filling it up, filling it up, eventually it's going to overflow, isn't it? So there's something different about what God has done and established. And he says, the sea doesn't, over, it doesn't ever flow over. And yet the river flows again into the sea. And so he's contemplating these massive and extraordinary things that God has done with his own power. And yet he's frustrated with it. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome. And so as he contemplates these things that God has done, he's frustrated because he can't do a thing to change it. And neither can we. And uh, in, in fact, in chapter 3, he says, there's an appropriate time for everything. God sets that time and place and event. And we can't do anything to change it. And so he's, he's frustrated by that, that. He understands his, uh, 
humbleness before the God of all these things. And then he says in verse 8 and following, all these are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. And then he goes into an explanation of, uh, we, of how there is nothing new under the sun. And if we read in verse 10, is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new. Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which, all, uh, which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come still later. So he, he's saying that there's nothing new. And you may say, well, wait a minute. Look at all these new inventions that have come about, even in my lifetime. I can pull out this phone and I go, whoa, this is pretty neat. Half my brain is now in here. But um, it's nothing new. You know why he can say that? And why we can also say the same thing? is because God opens the mind of men only to understand a little bit about what he has done. All these things God has done, and he opens our minds to understand them a little bit, about diseases, how to heal disease, about the human body, the wonder of it, and how to heal it, how to make it better, how to repair it. Uh, he gives us all kinds of abilities and insights into what he has made, Man will never discover or come up with an invention of something that God has not made already and existed. And so he can truthfully say that, that there is nothing new under the sun. We still have the same communication problems that we did back when Adam and Eve were in the garden. We still have the fr same frustrations with having to work hard in life because of the curse, and we can't get past that. Um, so there is nothing new. And to, to top it off then, He's even more frustrated with the fact that nobody will even care. You know, I'm, I'm contemplating retirement now. I'm an old man. And uh, it has hit me, it's even harder now studying the book of Ecclesiastes, how everything I do at work, all these really cool spreadsheets and tools I've made to do my job well and that impress the, the people in my leadership structure and they love it, Next person comes along, they aren't going to care a bit about what I've done. They're not going to use what I've done. They're going to have their own way of doing it. And so you're left with, why did I do all this? And that's what, in fact, what Solomon says here. And so uh, there will be no remembrance. Um, there are a few people we remember in life, but do you really know them? Do you really know Solomon, for example? We know about him. We know what he's written, and we benefit from him, but we, didn't, we never knew him as a person. In fact, I don't even know my great-great-grandparents. I barely knew my grandparents. And so the remembrance of them is very weak. And in fact, there isn't one in most cases. And so there is no remembrance uh, of, by those who will come still later. So he turns then, if you notice in verse 12, he turns then to the first person. And now he's going to give us his personal experiences. So he's looked at the kind of some over, overarching things about what God has done and the fact that there's nothing new and nobody's going to care anyway in the end. Uh, if, if you're just looking at this life of flesh, this short little life, as he calls it. He says, I, the preacher, in verse 12, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Once again, he's establishing his credentials here. 
to do this activity. And he says, I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done, has been done under heaven. There we have the first under heaven expression. And remember, this is from God's perspective. So uh, he, he realizes that he can only explore, he can only seek out those things which God has already set in place, this created order of God. And so he's going to look at all that under the heavens. And he says, it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of man to be afflicted with. Interesting verse. What's this grievous task that God has given to man? Okay, so in the garden, he's given us the task of labor. Of course, Adam had to work in the garden anyway before he sinned, but there's something different about that labor now. There's something very different about all our labor now that we do in the flesh. When Adam started in the garden with God, he would walk with God in the garden. He had a, he had a relationship with God in the garden, and his work was pleasant. It was fulfilling. It was satisfying because he knew for whom he was doing it, and he was doing it for his glory. Now what's happened in the fall is we've been separated from that presence of God, from that relationship with God, has been severed. And we've been pushed out of the garden, as Adam was, from the presence of God. And now man, born in his corrupted state, is in that point of existence. We're separated from God, and we're apart from God. And so this grievous task, it does include that, but I think we're also given a hint more about what that is if we look at verse, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 9, if you will. Right after the list of things that he says that there's an appropriate time for everything, he says this in verse 9. What profit, here it is again, that same statement, what profit is there to the worker from, uh, from that in which he toils. In other words, what profit is there in all my labors? He says, I have seen the task. There it is. I have seen the labor. I've seen that task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. That is God's prerogative. He brings about what he desires and ordains in his time and in his way, and we can't change it. He, that is God, has also set eternity in their hearts. Another big clue. There's something that God has put in the heart of every man and woman and child that has ever existed. There is something that will never be satisfied, never be filled, unless it is filled with God himself. And so uh, there is this eternity that we all desire that, that is built into us. It's a vacuum that will only be filled with the presence of God. I uh, put eternity in their hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I don't know what lies ahead for the next moment. We want to know. We want to plan. And indeed, he's going to tell us uh, that there is advantage to planning here uh, in uh, the next part of this verse. 
he says, it's a grievous task with which God has given to man, the sons of men, to be afflicted with. And he says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. Again, back now looking at uh, our life of flesh. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. So God has implanted, divinely so, a desire for us, for all of us, to know truth. We want truth. The problem is, in our fallen state, we have rejected the truth of God. And we have substituted instead what we define as truth. Man, can you see that in our world today? Every person is defining truth, as they call it. What's right, what's wrong, what I should do, what's good, what's bad. And it's all upside down from what God tells us in his word. And that's where man goes in his pursuit of his own truth, setting his own standards when he forsakes God. Uh, and so he then, he then goes on to say then, uh, here again is God at work. What is crooked cannot be straightened, verse 15, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to me, myself, behold, I have magnified wisdom. So he has set wisdom as his goal to understand these things. How does life work? How do I get ahead? How does man get ahead in life? And uh, he says at the end of verse 16, he had a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And in verse 17, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So now he's bringing in two more aspects. He wants to know, okay, is there any advantage to folly? Is there any advantage to just the madness of men where it takes them? And he says, I realized, I came to the conclusion, in other words, that this also is striving after wind because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. We, as we understand the truth of God deeper and deeper as we study his word, it gives us more pain to see what's happening around us. I don't know about you, but I imagine you're like me. I'm extremely frustrated and grieved at what my grandkids are growing up in and the deceptions that they are facing. And it troubles me to see that man can say, this is good. It's completely illogical. And it's frustrating. But uh, that's where we go. When we have wisdom and the truth of God, that's, that is our standard of measure. And it frustrates to see the worldliness of man and his wisdom. And... Uh, in, as, as man uses his worldly wisdom, uh, what he's doing is he's dethroning God and defy, uh, deifying himself. So as man in his, his own wisdom defines truth in his way, he's enthroning himself in life and dethroning God. And then an interesting section now comes in the first part of chapter 2, basically the first half, and where now Solomon turns to his experiences and he spells those out for us. So in this first building block of how do you enjoy life, where where does enjoyment of life come from, he's going to search it out in all kinds of ways. And again, I won't read all these verses, but he's going to seek it out in three ways. He's going to seek it out in power, He's, going to, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. He's going to seek it out in possessions. 
He's going to collect gold and silver and uh, the treasures of princes all around the world. He is going to seek it out in pleasures. He's going to, he is not going to deny himself any pleasure. And uh, as he does this then, he, he, he gives us the words of what he did. But then in verse 10, I want you to jump down to verse 10. Well, let's go to verse 9. He says, then I became great. His fame spread, and people are coming to him from all over the world. And he, uh, and he increased more than all who had preceded him in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. So here's Solomon. He's built houses for himself. And what I, I guess what I want you to notice in this section between verses uh, 1 and 9 of chapter 2 is, look at all the times he says, I did this for myself. I did that for myself. What can I do for myself? He's, he's figuring it out. He built ponds. He built forests. He built vineyards. He built homes. Uh, he collected treasures. He had many concubines, the pleasures of men. He denied himself nothing. And you know what? He had the power to do that. And yet, it's interesting to me to contemplate the fact that Solomon is the man who built the most awesome structure in all of the world that will ever be built, and that is the temple of God. This was a design given by God to man and Solomon got to build it. And so here's a man who's already accomplished that. And because he gives us these things that he's done, and he's, he's searching out the value of these pleasures and powers and possessions, this has taken a lifetime. This is no young Solomon anymore. Uh, and so he tells us then that in verse 10, that his heart was pleased because of all his labor. God does give man a certain temporary pleasure in what we do. I can accomplish something at work and I can feel good about it because I did everything I could to make it right, to be honest, to be upfront, to be blunt, to be candid, all those things that I've learned in my work career. And there's a certain satisfaction that isn't, isn't there. And yet, look at verse 11. This is what he says. After he thinks about that a little bit more, he says, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. In the end, what's left? Here I am, an old man, Solomon is saying, and I'm saying the same thing. I'm an old man. What's left? What am I left with? There's a certain emptiness in life, a certain emptiness in life, if it is lived without the Lord. And so even all these great things he's done, it brings no lasting satisfaction, no lasting joy, no lasting pleasure. And so now in uh, verses 12 and following, he's going to think about wisdom compared to folly. So if we can't find it in power, possessions, and pleasures... And the things of God that God has set in place, the wind, the sun, uh, 
and uh, life comes and goes, and I can't change it. Let's look, at, let's look at wisdom and compare that to wisdom, compare wisdom and folly. And so he does that in these next verses. And he says, so I turn to consider wisdom. And, and what I love is that you get this idea. He's, he's presenting us these test cases. I've tried this. I've looked into this. I've researched it. And uh, this is another one of those test cases. So since the above didn't work, let's check this out. He says, so I turn and consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will a man do? Uh, who will come after the king except what has already been done? There's that idea again. And there's nothing new under the sun. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. What does he mean here? There is a certain value to wisdom, isn't there? And we get it in the next verse. Look at verse 14. He says, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So what does that have to do with wisdom and folly? The wise man has eyes in his head, so you've got to think about, again, think below the surface here. What's he trying to say? We have eyes in our head to do what? To look ahead. That's what he's saying. A wise man looks ahead in life. He, He sees, if I go down this path, I'm going to face these difficulties. If I take this path, Maybe I can, can do this to, to lessen the impact of that problem. Or maybe I can avoid the problem altogether. So planning and strategizing is a good thing. There is an advantage to that. As light excels darkness, light overcomes darkness. Wisdom can overcome folly. And so it's a good thing. It's, it's good to, to be wise. And yet, in verse 14, the last half, and yet... I know that one fate befalls them both. So he's, he's figuring this out. He's got this thing in his mind. Then, boom, crash down again. Oh, man, I'm left in the same place. <clears throat> and so he says, then I said to myself, again, think of Solomon just sitting there contemplating, pondering all these things of life, even his own wisdom. And he says, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me the wisest man that ever lived. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. There's an advantage to wisdom and living life, uh, even in a worldly way of strategizing and planning, and yet it's vain in the end. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days of all will be forgotten. He's really distressed by that. There's no remembrance. Nothing's new. All will be forgotten. Look at these terms he's using. And when you get to my stage in life, you begin to contemplate those things a little more. Wait a minute. All I've worked for. What's it for? Yeah, it provided a nice income for me and a nice life. But in the end, is that what matters? And he's trying to point us to the fact that these things will deceive you if you're not careful. And uh, so here's his conclusion in verse 17, or uh, excuse me, in in verse 16. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So here's his conclusion. I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. God has put in each man this eternity, this desire to know truth, this desire for real, lasting joy. We can have a temporary 
part of that now, but it does not last. And so he's frustrated by it, and he's so frustrated that he says, I hated life for the work which I had done under the sun. There's that phrase. That's key to understanding what he's talking about. All the fruits of my labor under the sun, done by my hand for myself, in the end, are nothing. It was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. And then he even emphasizes it all the more. He says, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Here's another frustration of Solomon's. is Not only is there no remembrance, nothing is new, everything will be forgotten, but all the stuff I have, I have to leave it to somebody else. And he says, who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool who takes over my possessions. Do you think Solomon was a little concerned knowing his own sons? His sons were awful. And we can see that in the next king who takes over after Solomon, his son, who was a very rebellious and wicked man. And Solomon's concerned. I'm going to leave this all to a fool. And look at how he explains it here. Um, who knows, verse 19, whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This just gets him. I'm not going to have control anymore. This is his argument is, I don't have control in this life. Yes, I can apply wisdom. Yes, it's a good thing to apply wisdom in how we live life. But in the end, I have no real control because it's God who sets things. It's God. I can plan, but it's God who establishes each step of every man. And... Um, so, therefore, he's concerned about this turning over control to somebody else who's probably going to be a fool. And he explains a little bit more of that than uh, in the following verses. Therefore, I completely despaired, in verse 20, completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. And so, uh, when, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill... Then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man gain, or what does a, what does a man get in all his labor, in his striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. What's the advantage of laying awake at night, planning your, your day for the next day, and oops, it's God who really establishes the way. Um, and so it's, it's a complete frustration. So that's his first building block as to how he's going to arrive at this conclusion that when all is heard, fear God, keep his word, and know that every act you do will kind of come under the judgment of God. And he gives us a, a brief summary now in verses 24 through 26 in this section then of his conclusion after considering these, this first block of things. He says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and, let himself, or, and tell himself that his labor is good. Remember, there is this certain pleasure that God has given to us as people. It's, it's a grace of God. 
that he even grants to people who are extremely rebellious against him. There is some pleasure in life that he grants. But again, that thing that's longing for eternity that he has put in every person, that thing that is longing to know the truth, that thing that is longing to have that deep satisfaction in life. That, there's lots of words we can use. Satisfaction, contentment, joy, peace, rest for our souls. All of those things are, are uh, explaining what Solomon uh, is looking for here in life. And he says, so it is, it is good for a man to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. So God grants that. It's a grace from God. And yet, verse 25, he explains how this comes about. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? To get to the point that it's something that's lasting, uh, something that is more than just a moment or two or a day or two. If we live life knowing that it is God who gives it to us, that he is the giver, that he is that shepherd that Solomon talked about earlier, uh, that, that is the one who has given all these things. If we give credit, if you will, if we recognize that what we have in life is from the good hand of our shepherd, we then can enjoy it to a much deeper level, a much deeper degree than anybody else that does not know the Lord. And we then have a, have a contentment in life. And I hope that you all have had some of those experiences where something happened in your life. It may have just been a time when you're sitting down and thinking about something that happened in your life. Even a tragedy can bring these things about where you're thinking about it and how God brings a deep, deep satisfaction and contentment in all the turmoil that's happening around you. And yet you find that place of peace and rest. And that's what we're talking about here is the only place you will find that is through him. That enjoyment cannot be found without him, without God. And he explains it even further. He says, for the person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's what he's looking for. Enjoyment in life, joy, lasting joy. And so you have to ask yourself, whoa, wait a minute. For to the person who is good in his sight, who is that? Who is good in his sight? Because that's the ones he's going to give all this to, that contentment in life, that satisfaction, that joy in life. Well, that's why we read the end of the book. It's the one that fears him. That's the one that is good in his sight. It's the one who abides by his word and lives life that way. That is the one who is good in his sight. It is the one who lives life knowing that everything I do and think and say will be brought in line with his justice in the end, and I live life that way. That's who is good in his sight. And we know today, uh, Solomon perhaps didn't know this, but we do because we're post-cross, we know that that goodness comes to us. We can only be labeled as good because we have the goodness of Christ that dwells within us through the blood of Christ himself. 
And so we know what satisfaction is in life. We know what contentment in life is. Yeah, there's turmoil all around us, and it frustrates us to no end to see what's happening in the world around us, to see what the world says is good and, and pleasant and, and pleasurable, and we know in the end it only leads to destruction. And so uh, in conclusion then, there is no real enduring joy and satisfaction uh, and contentment and rest and peace in life if it's not found, uh, or there is none of that found in the fruit of my own labors. So if I look to the fruit of my own labors, the benefits of my own labors in life, I will never find that. But it is found in the giver of that fruit of my labors. It's a good God who gives me an income to have a life. It's a good God who gives me understanding and wisdom in life <clears throat> through the study of his word to know how to evaluate life. And the fruit of those contemplations is, comes from the giver. And if I, uh, that's where real joy is found. Also, a concluding, few concluding remarks. <clears throat> Meaning and purpose in life, that is lasting joy and contentment, are only found in a right relationship with God. This is why I had us read uh, uh, some passages uh, in the start. We have two examples uh, in life uh, or in scripture of people who, one who had a right relationship with God and one who did not. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 12 to see the one who did not. Because that's where contentment in life is found, is in our right relationship with God. That's who is good in God's sight. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired uh, to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Here's a man who had, did not have a right relationship with God, and he sought the blessing of God, even with tears. He was earnest about it. That's the way our world is today. They are earnest about what they think is good, and they're going after it with all their gusto. But in the end, there's nothing. They're left empty and vain. Esau didn't have that, didn't find that satisfaction in life because he thought he sought the blessing for his own goodness, for his own pleasure. And yet we have uh, in Psalm, turn to Psalm 16 that we read at the beginning of our time here together. Here's a man, David, who had a right relationship with God. And he explains that relationship to us in his contentment. Look in this passage for contentment, satisfaction, and joy in life. Was David's life easy? Absolutely not. He was a warrior. He fell deep into sin. He knew he deserved God's judgment. He experienced the mercy of God. And this is his, his evaluation of life. 
uh, starting in verse 5, uh, Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. He is looking to God for life. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is, my right, he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. David found it. How did he find it? He found it in the right relationship he had with God, his maker. We're created in the image of God, every one of us. And unless we turn to that creator for life and for uh, that eternal aspect that he's implanted in each one of us, we will end up completely empty at the end of life. Uh, another concluding remark then is that, yeah, life is filled with frustrations and sorrows. And it's for a purpose. It's under the sun. That's who we are. That's where we live. But they are designed by the infinite and the almighty God for a purpose, and that is to point us away from ourselves and to him, our Savior, the light of life. Life under the sun is a work of God to humble sinners so that we may see and know him. That is where enduring joy lies. Let's pray. Our Lord, we live in a world that is confused, that is deceived, that is on the path to destruction, clearly, that will self-destruct in the end. Calling itself good, it is evil and wicked. And yet, Lord, you have, in your good pleasure, in your mercy and in grace that is immeasurable, you have opened our eyes to truth, to the truth of the eternity that you have planted in every man, to the truth of where pleasure in life is found is not in the fruit of my hands, but in the giver of that fruit of my hands. We give you the glory in all things, our Lord and Savior and God our Father, for you have done great and mighty things in drawing us unto yourself, a work that no man could do, a work that it requires a power from eternity to bring about. And you, the eternal God, have done that good work in us. We praise and exalt you and thank you for these words that are pleasant to us because they help us to see rightly in life how to live life rightly under the sun and not to be distracted and deceived by the things of the world. And thank you for your servant Solomon who laid these things out for us, these wise and truthful and correct words. 
from you. We praise and exalt you today.